Well, praise God, it's great to be together. It's great to be into the fall, and I can't think of a better way to launch the next four weeks than to simply be talking about that, just grace. I love it. I love grace. And uh, for some of you here, I hope it may be a very first introduction, and I hope it changes your life, this idea of grace. For others of you, You've heard of this before, perhaps you've encountered grace, maybe you have some understanding, and I pray that today and over the course of this month, this series, that the Holy Spirit is just going to wash you over and over again like a wave, just knock you off your feet with His grace again and again, because it's absolutely incredible. So what is grace? How do you define this word grace? For some people, uh, isn't it the prayer that you say before you eat? So before we have the hot dogs, we are all supposed to say grace. I don't know why it's called grace. We say that sometimes. Other people think, well, is it just a fancy word in the Bible that means that God is really, really nice? Maybe that's what grace is. Several years ago, I asked a gentleman, I said the same question, what, what is grace? And he had a thick, lovely Southern American accent, which I'm going to attempt to do right now. <laughs> it was one of those John Wayne, like... Shut up and get in the truck. One of those ones. <laughs> and by the way, that wasn't half bad now, was it? That was pretty good. I said to him, what do, what do you think grace means? And he said, this, I'm not even joking. He, he said, it's a little smile on his face. He's like, grace is a woman that I met in Texas. She's a good-looking woman, but she's got a mean streak. That was his definition. <laughs> so we're going to be talking about grace, but it's not a good-looking good looking woman from Texas with a mean streak. Here's what I think it is. And in my imagination, I picture those old movies with the pirates. And you know they have that beautiful, massive, kind of old-fashioned treasure chest. And you creak that thing open, and the lid falls back. And you know in the movies, it's like just filled to the brim with coins, silver, and gold. And there's precious stones. There's rubies and diamonds and emeralds and all that stuff. And then you see like, you know, necklaces of gold and crowns. And it's just all just sort of stuffed in there, and it's kind of spilling out. And that's what it is. It's, it's God saying, I have a treasure chest for you in your life. Please don't go through life following me without accessing this incredible thing that I have for you. And it is, and this is so, so important, it's a gift from me to you. There's nothing that you do or say that can convince me or manipulate me that I ought to give you this. It is completely instigated and initiated from me to you. All you can really do is say, thank you, and then Crack that puppy open, and inside you're going to find, on a daily basis, as you live and, and walk with God, you're going to find uh, His truth and His goodness being poured out to you, and His patience. Isn't God incredibly uh, patient? Incredibly patient with me. His faithfulness, His love, uh, that endures over and over again, and, and it's just chocked full of His goodness for you. I want to share, uh, this is a little unusual for me, I'm going to go to the piano in about a moment, I want to sing a song for you. So I don't often do something like that in the middle of a sermon, but man, when I started to study this, this song just came to my mind so loudly. It's a friend of mine uh, in my home country, and she had a very unfortunate thing happen to her. She had three small children, and her, uh, her husband had an affair. And she kicked him out, and they were done, finished. And, uh, and that certainly has been the case. They've never, ever gotten back together. It's been many years now. And here's what would happen. You know, that's obviously incredibly painful. No one thinks that that's ever going to happen to them. And she was, I think, probably in shock 
Everything's crumbling. She's got these three little kids. They're devastated. She was devastated. And here was her difficulty. Late at night, she would put her kids to bed. He was gone. The house was somewhat empty. The kids were asleep. She had a very difficult time going into her bedroom. She didn't want to go into her bedroom for all that that represented. She didn't want to get into her bed that she had shared with her husband. And, uh, and so she didn't. She would put the kids to bed, she'd close the door, and she'd go downstairs. And she wouldn't sleep. And she was probably, you know, cut up and crying a lot of tears. And during the course of that time, probably several weeks and months, she just began to just cry out to God. Because she was broken. And she wrote some songs. And one of the songs that she wrote, for me, is, is the perfect definition of grace. And so I want you to hear this song, if you would, and I want you to perhaps understand the context of it, and I want you to maybe take this with us as our working definition over the course of the next four weeks as we are impacted by the grace of God, okay? Favor I don't deserve want us to carry that with us as a working definition for this treasure chest. I can't earn it. I don't deserve this. I've done nothing to merit this. I don't warrant this. In fact, what I deserve is the complete opposite of this treasure chest. I deserve his anger and his wrath and his judgment, but I will never know that. I will only ever know the smile of God upon my life. God, thank you for your grace. What a great way to start the fall. Just grace, nothing else. Several years ago, one of my kids, uh, it, was, it was bad, even by their standards. 
and they were in trouble. And they were in big trouble. And they knew it by the vein that was about to pop in my forehead. And so this child went upstairs with me and into daddy's bedroom, and we're going to have a conversation. And so I laid it out, and the volume of my daddy voice got a little bit on the louder side. And I said, look, this is what it is. This is what it means. This is what you did. Somebody was hurt. This is unacceptable. This is your behavior. How did you do this? And within 30 seconds, the chin was wobbling, and the lip was quivering, and then came the tears, and they knew they were in for it, because this was particularly bad. Not your average day run-of-the-mill stuff. And it came to a delightful, fabulous final crescendo in the form of, dare I say the word, consequences. And as my voice elevated and as the veins grew out of my neck and my forehead, I did something a little bit different. I said to my child, and you in this moment, now having understood what I've laid out, all your behavior and the, what that's done and how it's hurt other people and how could you do this and what this means is going on in your life. And now what you're going to do is you are going to self-prescribe to me the consequences for what you've done. You tell me what should be the punishment. Silence. Continued quivering lip and the tears were flowing. And this child thought and thought and then they laid out for me what they thought would be the right punishment and consequence. And it was impressively stern from them. And then here's where it is. Don't miss this. No, child, I appreciate what you've said, but you won't be doing any of that. Here's what's going to happen. Your dad is going to clean up this mess. Your dad is going to go to the person that you hurt and wounded. And I'm going to heal them, and I'm going to make them better. And today, you will not be getting any punishment. And you will not be getting any consequences. In fact, there are only two things that you will receive today. Forgiveness and acceptance. And their eyes, as wide as saucers, in disbelief. This has never been the case. How can this be? I know what I've done. I know what I deserve. In fact, I just laid out for you what really should happen to me. And you're saying, I'm getting none of that. No, child, you're not getting any of that. And do you know what it's called? No, Dad. Tears. No, Dad. What is this called? It is called grace. And today, you're getting grace. I don't think my child will ever forget that moment. And what I long for every single one of you is I want you impacted by grace. Could your response to grace be equal to that of my child in that moment? Oh, Dad, tears flowing. I can't believe this. Are you serious? Are you joking? No, son, I'm not joking. You're going to make that person that I hurt, you're going to make them better. Yes, I'm going to make them better. I don't get any, no punishment. No, no punishment for you, son. It's only love. It's only forgiveness. And it's only acceptance. Tears. And then joy. And then this child wraps his arms around me. Oh, dad, thank you for doing this. Thank you for doing this. As sincerely as that child could respond. I want that for you. I want that in my life. Today, what I want to show you is what I believe to be the greatest misunderstanding of this amazing treasure chest of grace. It's found in Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that nobody can boast. 
Same scripture from a paraphrase. Saving is all his idea, all his work. All we do is trust him enough to let him do it. It's God's gift from start to finish. We don't play the major role. If we did, we'd probably go around bragging that we'd done the whole thing. No, we neither make nor save ourselves. Here's the greatest mistake. True story of a guest speaker, a guest pastor. He visited another church. And he was speaking, and he did a great job. And he got up there, and he was talking about what we're talking about. He began to elaborate on what the Word of God has to say about this treasure chest of grace. And in doing so, he totally focused on the sufficient, complete work of Jesus Christ on the cross at Calvary. And he used scripture and story and symbolism and personal experience, and he pointed to the undeserved work of God on our behalf. Here's the mistake. As the guest was leaving that day, he overheard the pastor of that church whispering to his associate. And here's what he said. Huh. That airhead, he simply pointed out, he never pointed out one thing that we have to do to earn our salvation. There it is. He never pointed out one thing that we have to do to earn our salvation. Something is radically wrong with that picture. Somehow we've taken this amazing grace and we've turned it into religious bondage. And what it does is it contorts who God truly is. And it turns him into some kind of little small-minded bookkeeper who's balancing the pros and cons of your life. Somehow weighing up the good stuff and the bad stuff so that if you can get it tipped in your favor on any given day, maybe you can be the elite. Maybe you can be a good little boy or a good little girl finally in his eyes. What do we bring to this exchange? Nothing. And when we go there, the church begins to resemble Wall Street. It's transactional. The misunderstanding of grace is lethal because love is stifled and freedom is handcuffed and people end up wounded. To put it bluntly, the church in this country accepts grace in theory but denies it in practice. And the gospel of grace is not proclaimed. It is not understood. It is not lived. And that is a fearful and joyless existence. And I don't want it. And I get it. I get why we think like this. All of us. Because this is what I know about you. This is what you've been told all your life. There's no free lunches. Right? You want it? You work for it. You want love? Earn it. You want mercy? Deserve it. That's what you've been told all your life, and I'm the same. God only loves good little boys and good little girls. No pain, no gain sermons. Gotta try better. Better roll up my sleeves. Do-it-yourself spirituality. Scripture insists that salvation and this love is God's initiative. It's not yours. That this tremendous lover has taken chase after you, and he will not let it go. But our version of spirituality and Christianity often starts with me and self instead of actually starting with the author, with God himself. Tell me this. Have you ever talked like this? I'm going to try to be nicer. I'm going to try to do good stuff. I'm going to try not to make so many mistakes. I'm going to try not to sin as much. As if we could acquire those things like we're practicing our handwriting or a golf swing. As if somehow that enough of it would somehow perfect us in that way. 
And all in that, the emphasis is on what I can do rather than what God is doing. And so here's what we do. Hey, God, why don't you take a bench right there? Why don't you check out, what? see how I can impress you. Why don't you see the stuff that I can do? You sit down there. You can be the spectator in this little equation right here. You can be an onlooker. And I'll pick up my Bible and I'll read my scriptures and I'll pray some really nice prayers. Check it out, God. You impressed? The misunderstanding of grace is crippling because a self-made Christian who can pull themselves up by their own bootstraps will eventually get to what? Exhaustion. You will exhaust yourself. And then you will not be comforted with this painful truth. I am inadequate. I am insufficient for this be nicer, do better, sin less formula that I've got going on to impress God so that I can open up the treasure chest. That's an exhausting way to go through your life. All of that spiritual sweat has not added an inch to your spiritual stature. And then you end up like, man, Christianity is a crock. This doesn't work. This is depressing. Is this what Christianity is? And so many people think, I'm walking with God. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. And it's despair and it's pessimism and it's gloom. Worst case scenario, you try so hard, you get to a point of pure exhaustion and frustration. And eventually, in your misunderstanding of grace, you wag your finger at God and say, where were you? Didn't you see what I did for you? Didn't you see the lengths that I went to? Don't you love, you should be loving me and giving me your patience and your kindness and your goodness because I deserve it. I've earned it. Trying to be a good little boy and a good little girl. That is a joyless way to go through life. Somehow we've missed the story of the prodigal son. Author Brennan Manning puts it like this. All are huffing and puffing to impress God. All are scrambling for brownie points, are thrashing about, trying to fix ourselves and hide our pettiness and wallowing in guilt. It's nauseating to God, and it's a flat-out denial of the gospel of grace. Theology puts it like this, such a small, concrete phrase, and I think it's very strong. Justification by grace through faith. There it is. Justification by grace through faith. In other words, that you could actually be in a place where you are made just. You are made right. You are put into good standing with God. Simply because of His grace. This treasure chest. This undeserved kindness and love of God. And your part in this incredible transaction, yes, you actually do nothing. Nothing at all. You're just on the receiving end of this incredible gift. So it's not your money. It's not your serving. It's not your church attendance. It's not your good little attitude. It's not your connections or your education. It's not your reputation. It's not the best thing about you, nor is it the worst thing about you. Your part in all this is to simply say, and I trust you. I'll put my faith that this is for somebody like me. Justification by grace through faith. Another author, Chesterton, he describes it as this, and I, I, I just love this. He says, it's the furious love of God. I like that. The furious love of God. Watch out. He says, he's not moody or capricious. He knows no seasons of change. 
He has a single, relentless stance towards us. I love you, and I'll never stop loving you. He's the only God man has ever heard of who loves sinners. False gods, the gods of human manufacturing, they despise sinners. But the Father of Jesus loves all, no matter what they do. But it's almost too incredible for us to accept that through no merit of ours, but by his mercy, we have been restored into right relationship, justified, put in good standing, simply through the life, death, and resurrection of his beloved son, Jesus Christ. That is the good news. That is the gospel of grace. Matthew 9 gives us a little glimpse. Later, when Jesus was eating supper at Matthew's house with his close followers, a lot of disreputable characters came and joined them. Now watch for the misunderstanding right here. When the Pharisees saw him keeping this kind of company, they had a fit. And they lit into Jesus. What kind of example is this from your teacher? Acting cozy with crooks and riffraff. Now watch Jesus attempting to teach what grace really is. Jesus is overhearing. He shot back. Who needs a doctor? The healthy or the sick? Go figure out what scripture means. I'm after mercy, not religion. I'm here to invite outsiders, not coddle incisors. Oh no, he didn't. <laughs> Drop the mic. There it is right there. Throw down. Jesus came for sinners. Jesus came for the worst person in this room. Jesus came for IRS you work for them, he still loves you. <laughs> Jesus came for factory workers and office workers and home workers and street workers and hookers and AIDS victims and even you. And Jesus not only talks to them, he dines with them, fully aware that everyone else is raising their eyebrows. I want the gospel of grace to lay a hold of you right now. I want you to Shed these lies that you've got to do something, earn something, impress them somehow. I want you to shed that. I want grace to just grip you. You can stop lying to yourself that you can be actually saved from the necessity of self-deception. It's the reality that sin, man, is still going on in your life. Sin still wages war all of the time. It's coming out of you. It's inside of you. The truth that sometimes even on your good days, you are unloving and that you are irritable and that you are filled with resentment, even on your good days, and that you can acknowledge that. You can say, that's the truth about me. I'm not perfect. That you can actually admit that you have failed, that God loves you and knows you as you are. That's grace. There's no, not, no need any longer for the rest of your life for you to continue to try to apply spiritual cosmetics to this facade as if you're impressing God or impressing other people. It's ownership of your powerlessness, your neediness, your poverty. And when that truth begins to sink into your life, you get to be freed from a dull, lifeless, boring existence of trying to earn brownie points and now you're free to respond like my child responded are you serious dad you're just going to take care of this mess you're going to heal those that were hurt 
You're not going to dish out punishment and judgment and anger on me, Dad. Are you serious? Tears flowing down. Joy. All I get is love and acceptance. All I get is forgiveness. Are you serious? Is this a joke? Because it's too good to be true. I long that your reaction would be like that of my son. That you would be able to say, I'm a bit of a mess. There it is. I'm a bit of a mess. Sometimes I believe, and then I don't. Isn't that every one of us? Sometimes I believe, and I'm, I'm like, man, I've got faith. And then I'm like, man, I'm filled with doubts and reservations. I don't know what I believe anymore. Sometimes I feel bad that I feel good. That's messed up. Why do I feel like that? Sometimes I feel guilty that I shouldn't feel more guilty. And we, we struggle with this stuff. I trust God until I don't trust him anymore. I'm a sinner. I'm a saint. And this duplicitous peace moves around inside of every single one of us. And to live by grace is at least to be honest about it. That exists in me. Another author, Thomas Merton, he puts it like this. A saint is not someone who is good, but someone who has experienced the goodness of God. Again, here's what I want for you. Today, and over the course of the next four weeks, I want grace to lay a hold of you. I want you to see that grace operates in the middle of your mess. In fact, it only operates in the middle of your mess. That's what it's for. To think, you are not just a disillusioned old man waiting to die. You are not just a middle-aged woman stuck in a job that you want to get out of. You're not just some young person filled with anxiety about tomorrow. You're not just in the middle of a muddled up marriage wondering, I, I don't know if I'm going to figure this out. You may be insecure. You may feel inadequate. And here's the thing. You may actually be inadequate for so many things in life. You may be unhealthy. You may be mistaken. You may be hurt and confused and wounded. Death and panic and depression may be surrounding you or near you. But you are not just those things. Grace screams at you. It roars at you as you open up this treasure chest, this singular truth. You are accepted. Despite all of these things in your life, the mess that describes you, you are accepted by the God of heaven and earth. Never confuse your self-perception of yourself with this unmovable, unchangeable truth, this eternal truth that you're accepted by God. 2 Corinthians 12, it's such a, an all-encompassing statement. My grace is all you need. That's it. If you can get your arms around this one, you're going to be in great shape. My power works best in weakness. That's Paul. Look at what he says. That God's power works best in when Paul is weak. You see, the worst enemy of grace is pride. Most proud people don't know that they're proud. It's a complete blind spot for them. They cannot see it. But the problem with grace and pride is that when you're filled with pride and you need grace, you think, I don't want it. I don't need it because I've got this. Paul actually starts boasting about his weaknesses. He's not proud. He's filled with humility. He's underscoring the mess of his life. I think he's kind of laughing at it going, that's me. That's me, one big holy mess. Because he realizes that that mess, that weakness, that powerlessness is the front door entrance to entering and stepping into grace in his life. 
And he's not too proud to accept the amazing handout of his grace. Let me close with this incredible scene in Revelation chapter 7 where we see a multitude of people and they're standing in front of this throne. This massive crowd. They're standing in front of the Lamb and it says that they are dressed in white and they're holding palm trees in their hands and they open their mouths and this is what it says. It says there is a roar of praise that comes out of their mouths. Perfectly white. This is a momentous occasion. It is the end of time. It is an awesome, epic moment in time. And the question goes out, who are these people who are speaking and singing and roaring out these praises? Who are these people that are dressed in sparkling white robes? How is it that they are here? How is it that they are able to do this and be this? How can this actually be? Let me tell you who they are. This epic moment is filled with who? It is filled with the prostitute who knows of no other options because she's trying to raise her two-year-old child. It is filled with that woman who had an abortion and is haunted by guilt and remorse. It is filled with the businessman who is besieged by debt and therefore he sold his integrity. It is filled with the pastor who is addicted to approval and was paralyzed to bring any semblance of challenge to those he cared for. The teenager who is molested by a family member who now sells his body out on the streets. The deathbed convert who spent his whole life having his cake and eating it. And there they stand. But how can this be? How is this? And the voice says, they have washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. There they are. There they are. This multitude, they wanted to be faithful, who at times got defeated and were soiled by life. They were bested by trials and sin. They were black and blue from wounds inflicted, but they clung to faith because they were justified by grace through faith. My friends, this is the gospel of grace. Here's how we're going to close right now. We're going to take their words in Revelation chapter 7. When they open their mouths and they roar his praises. Because like children, they are overwhelmed by this grace that they have received. That they do not deserve. And in that moment, they stand up and they say powerful words. And I'm going to ask us in about 10 seconds to stand up. And we're going to, with one loud voice, we're going to say these words from the word of God. The reason why I pause is before I ask you to stand, I want you to do more than simply be a person who says, I'm going to come up from my seat. Here's what I want to ask you to do. I want you to stand, if you are a follower of Christ, as one who knows that they are in good standing with God. That there's a reverence and a holiness simply to the action of you coming to your, both of your feet and standing erect in his presence and opening your mouth and saying this truth about him. Community church, would you stand in the presence of God? <laughs> this is great grace, isn't it? This is amazing grace. And with one voice, as loud as you can, let's sing and let's speak these words from Revelation chapter 7. They sang, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength belong to our God forever and ever.
Amen. Can we give him praise and thanks and glory for his grace? Thank you, Jesus. We love you, God. We praise you. We honor you, God. You have done great things, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Praise God. Church, do not miss a week. I want you every week arrested with new revelation about this incredible grace.